Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be down here again. We do love the shore. Point Pleasant is our favorite beach um, at the shore. Uh, please stand if you're able as we read God's Word. I'm going to read Psalm 16, and you can follow along as I read God's Word. It's a, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let me just pray as we open. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this, your word, to our hearts, that we might know it and understand it and believe it, that we indeed would have pleasures forevermore, that knowing that you are our chosen portion and our cup. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe seated. And so uh, I want to start uh, today. I mean, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about uh, happiness. I want to talk about uh, what gods you worship, and I, I want to talk about finding joy. Happiness, what gods you worship, and finding joy. And so let me start with happiness uh, and with the question: Are you happy? Are you happy? You don't need to answer that directly. You think about it. Are you happy? Uh, one, of my, one of my co-workers in campus ministry said that might be the great evangelistic question of this generation, is asking people, are you happy? And why did he say that? Um, I think because, you know, we, we, we center happiness uh, in, our, in our current culture. Uh, the pursuit of happiness um, arguably is, is, is what we're, we, we think we're all about, the pursuit of individual happiness. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, he, you know, he put that in, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They had enough wisdom to not try to promise happiness, right? But the pursuit of happiness, which they probably understood, you know, in, in uh, uh, everyone under his own vine and fig tree and no one afraid, you know, that sense of uh, um, you would have land and freedom from oppression, such that you could flourish um, as a family, as a community, as a nation. Um, but that really, ever since maybe the 1960s, that's kind of central. You know, I think about my grandparents, uh, um, both my American grandparents and my Scottish grandparents, or, or my wife's grandparents in Korea, and, you know, their cultures were, like, were, were oriented around duty, right? They, they had a clear sense growing up of, what am I supposed to do? What are, my, what are my obligations? My, my dad, who, who's a Scotsman, you know, he, uh, he, when the queen died, you know, he remembered you know, as a boy watching the queen be crowned, and he said, that's the end of like, my Scotland or my Britain. You know, the, the Britain that he grew up in was one, as, as Queen Elizabeth 
embodied was one that was oriented around duty, about, around responsibility, not around seeking personal satisfaction. But, you know, we in our current culture love pursuing happiness. And we use it, you know, if you use, it, if you use this phrase or someone uses it to you, I have to do this for my happiness. I have to do this for my happiness. You know, there's some, you're, they're having some, you're having some conversation, and they're going to make some really abrupt, dramatic life decision. And, like, and when they say that, or when you say that, like what we mean is, like, that is the conversation over, right? If I say, like, this is important for my happiness, right, which only I can know, only I can define, and no one else can speak into, then you just are expected to just end the conversation and provide support, right? Because we are all about the pursuit of happiness. But I, I do want to say, like, we're doing it really, really badly. <laughs> like, we are not succeeding. I, you know, I was, I was looking at a, a trend. I mean, being in campus ministry, I'm very, and having done it 20 years um, almost, uh, I'm very attuned to the shift in the younger generation. And people would ask, you know, a long time uh, alumni would come back and they say, oh, how have the students changed? And I would say they haven't changed, the same as they ever were. But there was a change, and there was a change that started in uh, 2012. And uh, you can look at these graphs, like depression among U.S. teens. You know, and up until about 2012, it was, it was quite steady. It's about 5% of boys and about 12% of girls would self-identify as, as or, or would be categorized as having major depression, which is bad enough, right? That's bad enough. But that's where it was right up to 2012. And then in 2012, and you can look at all kinds of graphs, all kinds of statistics, all of a sudden we see everything negative starts going up like this in 2012. And it's just kept going. And it's got even a little, a little higher um, as... As the, as the years have progressed. And so now, like, it's the increase. It's, we've seen a doubling and even, even a tripling. Now we're up to, you know, 30% of U.S. teen girls would be categorized as suffering from major depression. And, you know, 12% of U.S. teen boys. And those statistics even predate the, uh, that's like, you know, predating the pandemic. And that has not made it better, the lockdowns for the youth. And so we live in this interesting time where we are obsessed with our personal happiness, and we are not finding it, right? We are not finding it. And so sometimes I say this to the students because the students I'm ministering to, that's all they know. I remember seeing that shift and experiencing it and the tremendous increase in unhappiness. And, but that's all they've known. That's their whole life, right? They grew up in it. In 2012, what happened? You know, what, what's that inflection point? That inflection point is when a majority of U.S. teenagers had a smartphone in their hand and a majority of U.S. teenage girls were on Instagram, right? I asked this, you know, a few weeks back in my campus ministry. I was, you know, teaching in the campus ministry large group. And I asked that, you know, how many of you had smartphones? You know, what age were you when you got your first smartphone? It was like 10, you know, and, and when were you, how old were you on Instagram? I think Instagram's rule is you need to be 13. But anyway, it's like 10, 11, 12, right? And so social media, like statistically speaking, social media, it, it's kind of akin to like handing a, handing a child a preteen, a, preteen a, a, a bottle of whiskey and saying, I would like you to become a whiskey connoisseur. And go drink it alone in your room. You know, I wish that was an exaggeration, but like when we see what has happened culturally to happiness, we see it's not gone well. But it's deeper. You know, I mean social media, that's the primary target. And I do think that's accurate, 
that social media is really harming us, and not just the young, but also, I think, the older as well. I think, I think it has some of that uh, negative impact, right? You just, you're having a bad day, what do you do? You just share that on, on Facebook, or you share it on Instagram, or wherever you choose to do your social media. You share it on Twitter, and then someone comes along and like either, you know, uh, drives it harder, the, the upset or the anger, or the outrage, or maybe they argue with you, uh, and you get into an argument with someone on the internet. It's, it's unhelpful, right? It keeps us from real relationships with people. But it goes deeper than that. I was reading, this is, uh, uh, it was a piece by this uh, psychologist, secular psychologist, Jonathan Haidt is his name, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, he wrote a great book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, he's a professor up at NYU. Don't hold that against him. But he's a professor up at NYU in social psychology. And he, um, uh, Haidt argued recently that what we're doing is uh, uh, believing lies about ourselves. There's an interesting thing in, in secular uh, therapy, um, which, is, uh, which has its uses, called cognitive behavioral therapy. And what CBT does, cognitive behavioral therapy, is it tries to identify, and this is just you know, secular people trying to get a grasp on our unhappiness. It tries to identify, uh, they call them cognitive distortions. They're essentially lies that we tell ourselves. Um, and so, you know, what are some of those cognitive distortions? It's like, oh, well, we, uh, you know, we catastrophize. You know, we, ta we take an issue and we say, this is the end of the world, or we engage in emotional reasoning, right? And we say, well, this is how I feel, and how I feel is true, right? And there's so much of that, especially among the younger generation, though I think throughout our culture now. And part of the, the therapy is to, to try to reject those lies and to say, don't magnify it. Don't make it a catastrophe. Don't uh, believe all the, everything that you feel. But we are doing the opposite culturally. We're saying your feelings are always true, right? What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Not makes you stronger, but makes you weaker. And that's what we say to ourselves and to each other. And so we see this because it's true. If you ask me among the younger generation, there are a lot who are quite fragile. Maybe you're experiencing that yourself if you're a teenager. And because we're steeped in, I think, believing lies that we tell ourselves. And so our pursuit of happiness is not succeeding. We're, like, we're doing really badly at it. And you come to a psalm like Psalm 16, and David has, I think, what we want. Right? This is a, this is a psalm of trust. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That, that refuge, that's a, that, 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 that tells you right off that he is trusting in the Lord. Right? He is relying on the Lord. I have no good apart from you, right? He's not saying, I have no good apart from me. I have no, God, no good apart from the happiness that I find for myself. He's saying, no, I have no good apart from you, Lord. And, you know, how does that trust manifest itself? So he's relying on the Lord, verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 and 4, he is devoted to the Lord. He's devoted to the Lord's people. So it's not an individualism. But he's devoted to the excellent ones, the saints in the land. They are his delight. And he does not chase after those who run after another god, right? He does not pour out their drink offerings of blood, verse 4. And that brings me to my second point, which is what god do you worship? Because, you know, thinking about it, it was interesting reading a secular psychologist trying to wrestle with the lies we're telling each other that encourage depression. And, but it, it can only get you so far. 
right? I mean, even, even, even if you grow up, even if you're not fragile, even if you grow up to be a, you know, a strong and stable adult and you're not afraid to pay bills, I'm always telling the college students like this, it's so much better to be on the far side of adulthood, right? And just to be able to handle a few things, you know, it's not as scary as you think. Um, you know, they're very good at the book learning, but they're not good at the practical stuff in life, some of them. And uh, just trying to give that encouragement. Um, but, you know, even if you're that, that doesn't mean you're not believing lies. I was, I was uh, this was a, you know, a friend, um, you know, uh, a family who are good friends of ours. We uh, when, you know, when we had our first child, they had their first child at the same time, and we became parents at the same time we were in Bible study together. And they were an interesting couple. You know, she came from a very secular background, um, uh, grew up uh, almost on the beach in California. Father was a professor at a university, very liberal blue state culturally. And, um, and her husband was, his father was a Texas oilman, you know, very red state culturally. And, uh, you know, he actually led her, her husband led her to faith when they were undergrads. You know, he got her reading the Scripture. Not that that's how you should um, find your spouse, like, you know, find your spouse and then convert, or find your girlfriend and then convert her. But it works out by God's grace in their situation. And, uh, you know, and she was reading the Scripture, and the Lord uh, brought her to faith. But, you know, she'd always struggled with the cultural divide between their two families, right? Because she came from that California coast kind of culture, and he came from that Texas oil culture. And, um, and she'd always felt closer to her parents in that than to his. But, you know, when they had their own children, when they had a baby, it's like her parents were that, those secular baby boomers, where they were like, the grandchildren were almost like inconvenient to them. Or it's like, because they're trying to live an active life, hold on to their youth, right? Like baby boomers. They were like trying to, they were focused on their hobbies, their individual hobbies. And a baby, and taking care of a baby is just inconvenient. I mean, I see some of you have babies, right? Like, it's like it really gets in the way of your hobbies, doesn't it? It really gets in the way. You're kind of like all your hobbies go out the door. And whereas her, like, her Texas, uh, you know, oil, oil, uh, oil, oil um, worker uh, in-laws, they were believers and they were about people. And so they, for them, it was just no question, like, babies are a good gift from the Lord. And so they were, they stepped up, and they're, like, providing all that. I mean, you know, if your grandparents, um, like, how much of a blessing that is to your kids to, 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 if you're able to provide some help with the child care. And it was just a, it was a moment of revelation for her. This is the difference that following the Lord makes. Like, our culture, one of the deeper lies we tell ourselves is that it's all about me, right? What God are we worshiping? You know, we may not be going and bowing down to idols of Baal or Dagon or whatever it might have been, offering our children as sacrifices to Moloch, whatever the things might have, that might have taken place in the time of David, but we are worshiping other gods, right? Calvin says famously in the Institutes, our hearts are idol factories. We build idols. We have no trouble building idols, and, you know, we have many of them. Uh, you know, some of them, some people idolize their work and their career. Some people idolize comfort. That's a growing one, I think. You know, I ask a lot of students, like, what is the idol in your life? It's YouTube, right? And uh, it's comfort. It's distraction. 
um, that people idolize. We idolize uh, sharing our strong opinions on social media, whatever it might be in your life. But underlying it all, I think, fundamentally, is we worship ourselves. And we see that very strongly in that language of, like, this is my happiness, as if we are all unicorns and unique, and no one can tell us what to do. And you just think, you know, you think on a beautiful, uh, on a beautiful day like this, we've had some beautiful days recently, and you just walk around, you see the flowers in bloom, and you say, did I make this? Right? Did you make the trees? Did you make the, the ocean? Did you make the sky? Did you make yourself? Right? This is, it, is, it is a gift. Right? I was delivered into adulthood through like, uh, the, the work of the Lord through my mother. Right? Um, all that was done just for me by my family, by my church. And my very existence is not my own doing. But we chase after that God, I think, of worshiping ourselves. And that's, I think, why we live in this paradox of a culture where we pursue happiness and we find unhappiness, right? We pursue pleasure and we find despair because we are running after another God. And that God, for most of us, I mean, there are different things. I don't know what it is in your life, the things that you are tempted to rely on. I mean, it's this question. This is a psalm of trust. David is relying on the Lord. He is devoted to the Lord, to the saints in the land. His delight, verses 5 and 6, is in the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Right? He is learning from the Lord, verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And he is rejoicing in the Lord, verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. And what's the outcome of that? He has what we all want, which is fullness of joy and pleasures for everyone. This is a good test, like for idols in your life. Like if you think, like, what are you devoted to? Like just if you just look at your time or what you are anxious about, like when you're in bed at night, that's where David is saying, you know, you're the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. That's the time often of maximum anxiety for so many of us. In the night also my heart instructs me. The Lord is teaching him in the night, right? He's not anxious about what the next day will bring because he knows that the Lord is before him. And so he will not be shaken. But you should ask this, the things you're devoted to, the things that cause you anxiety, the things that rule over your life, the things that you uh, prioritize and choose and you think, oh, this will provide me refuge, you should ask yourself this question, does it provide you fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? You know, like Netflix. Let me pick on Netflix. You know, I, maybe you enjoy Netflix. The average American spends a lot of hours on Netflix, and it has its place. But uh, do you have no good apart from Netflix? In the presence of Netflix, is there fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? Or what is it for you? YouTube. I mean, for most, most young people, it's, it's YouTube these days, TikTok, maybe. Um, is there fullness of joy? I mean, there's like fullness of time wasting. There's like distraction forevermore. Uh, um, enough to distract us until, until we grow old and gray, I suppose. Right? We, we, we do have some interesting toys, culturally. But is it pleasures forevermore? Even, even more sophisticated 
um, idols, you know, maybe career is your idol. This is a real challenge, I think, for, like, you do, you, uh, you do a job, and it does, and which is a blessing, and can give you a, a sense of purpose and, and value. Um, but, uh, you know, many people, they value their job at the expense of their families. And this is a classic way to harm happiness. Far, rather than, you know, all the, all the evidence tells us that actually, yeah, to be happy, what do we need to be doing? We need to be focused on relationships, on family, on community, on children. And yet so many in our culture, on the one hand, we have all this focus on distraction uh, and technology. And then on the other hand, uh, often a, an obsession with, with work and career as if that will give you pleasures forevermore or fullness of joy. I mean, you think, you think we have such a cult of fame, like, I need to be famous, and the social media really fuels this, and so, we, you know, there's this, like, you, you'd want to stalk people who are famous. You know, who we should stalk are people who have found this fullness of joy. And so, that, that brings me to my last point, which is finding that joy. How do, how, how do we get there? How, how did David get there? He got there by knowing who made him. And knowing what the Lord taught, he knew the God who created this world and who has revealed himself down through the ages in his word. And David allowed himself to be instructed by that word and for it to lead him to an end to himself, right? Rather than in our culture where it's all about me, the beginning and the end of everything is me. Not such a, I mean, it seems like, it seems so nice like to make everything about me or everything about you. But it's so harsh because what, what does it ultimately deliver for us, right? Me, I, I am the problem, right? One of my college roommates, he said this, the problem with the world is people and we're people. I always loved that. We're people, <laughs> you know? Me too. And if I just listen to my own heart, where has that gotten me? Not fullness of joy. Not pleasures forevermore. But what does David know? He knows that the Lord is his Savior. If I can pull in Psalm 51, another of the Psalms of David, you know, where David is, is rebuked uh, by Nathan the prophet because of his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. You know, he, he, he gets Bathsheba pregnant and then her husband Uriah, he has killed in, in, the, in battle um, in order to, to cover it up and so that he can take Bathsheba um, as his wife. And, you know, Nathan presents it to him as the hypothetical um, situation, and David is full of anger, and Nathan says, you are the man. And so David knew what it was to sin, sin in a way that you cannot make up for, right? Uh, to recognize that he was a sinner who could not save himself. And what, what does he say in Psalm 51? He says, what does the Lord desire? A broken and a contrite spirit. Right? A humbling, a, not a turning to self, but a turning away from self. And David knew what it was to receive the Lord's forgiveness. He knew from the Scripture that God was saving for a people for himself through history. You know, the exodus, bringing the people out of slavery and into the promised land. But he also knew on a personal level. Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave. That means the grave in Hebrew. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He knew God's salvation both on uh, the big level through history and on the personal level, the forgiveness of sin. And uh, uh, Peter quotes this 
uh, these verses in, uh, on Pentecost in the Acts 2, in the sermon that started the Christian church, he quotes these verses. And Paul does the same in Acts 13, uh, pointing uh, to their ultimate fulfillment in the Son of David, Jesus Christ, who, uh, uh, as we noted with Easter, who, whose soul was not abandoned to the grave and who did not see corruption but was raised such that we would have life. You have made known to me, David says here, the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. I, you know, I chose this psalm. This psalm is very near and dear to me um, because, you know, some years back my father, uh, he uh, got diagnosed with cancer and, uh, you know, was under good treatment for a number of years, though at this point he's past the stage of treatment. Um, you can pray for him. But years ago, when he was first diagnosed, I said, you know, Dad, you've got you to write some autobiography, write down some family history uh, for me. And uh, he, he, he's a writer, and so he did that, uh, which I appreciated. And, you know, he sent it to me, um, you know, this is, yeah, a few years ago. And, um, and in, in the preface to that, this little autobiography he wrote uh, for him, uh, for, the, for, for the family, he quotes this verse, uh, Psalm 16, verse 6. This is the verse he quotes, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. And what, what is that referring to? It's like I, the lines are the boundary lines of your land, the agricultural land, your farm on which, by which you would be able to support yourself and your family, right? The lines, you know, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. He holds my lot and the lines have fallen for me. In pleasant places, and I, I got—I was over in—I uh, was in Cleveland at the wedding, at a wedding, uh, in a hotel room when he—you know—I got—he I, I, sent it to me by email, and I, I wept. I have it written in my Bible. You know, there it is um, in the margins, because that—that—that is a powerful statement. To be old, not to be young, and healthy and beautiful and with opportunity ahead of you in this world, but to be old and sick and to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. There's, there's a man you should stalk, right? There's someone you should be, who should be famous. That's what we need on TikTok, I guess. Older saints, somehow, to reach the younger generation, who can say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Because who is my chosen portion in my cup? Not me, but the Lord. What has he done for me? Everything. Everything. He is my refuge. He gives me counsel. He gives, calls me into the communion of the saints, who indeed are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. He blesses me with the community of the church. And he provides the path of life. Right? Not in this world, not living for this world, not like the cult. We have this so much in our culture, the cult of youth. If only I was young and beautiful. My, my wife was joking that verse 6, you know, that, that could be read by middle-aged women as the line, you're thinking about wrinkles, you know, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Um, and uh, it's not the original context, but you know, well, free interpretation. Um, but, you know, that's how we do it, right? It's like, oh, I must be young. I must have opportunity and excitement. But no, through all our days and looking to the world that is to come, if you are with the Lord, if you are in the Lord, if you know that Jesus Christ is your, is your Savior who laid down his life on the cross, why did he die? 
to pay the price for our sin? And why did he rise that we might have eternal life? And there, there, there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. Knowing what God, the great love God has for us, knowing what Christ has done for us. Do you know that? Do you have that fullness of joy? Do you have those pleasures forevermore? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that that would be true for each one of us. That if we are chasing, as, as no doubt, we are chasing after so many other things, chasing after other gods, maybe chasing after worshiping ourselves, like, like, uh, like is, as is so common in our culture right now. Heavenly Father, draw us back and bring us back to you and bring us to an end of ourselves and of our self-reliance and bring us in humility and to repentance for sin. But lift us up, Heavenly Father, uh, and show us the path of life. I pray that would be true for each one today, for any who is far from you, that you would draw them to yourself, for any who feels dry, who feels far from pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. I pray that you would be at work showing him or her what joy there is to just be in relationship with you, to be your child, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be drawn into this great community, which is the church of Jesus Christ, to look forward as pilgrims, as sojourners to the city whose builder and maker is God, to know even, even in old age, even as we approach death, even as we deal with living in a fallen world, that you will not let your Holy One see decay, and that there is the resurrection of the dead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.